All right, that was fantastic. Ah, so if you have your Bibles, um, I encourage you to open up to the book of Daniel. Um, if you're here with us uh, in person, um, you'll notice that we do have two Bibles, um, all strategically scattered throughout um, the sanctuary. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. If you don't, I encourage you to open up uh, either your Bible or your favorite Bible program uh, on your digital platform, uh, because we're going to be spending some time in the book of Daniel. And I've asked for your prayers um, about this, because this is an incredibly dense book. Um, it's just a tough book. And we're going to be looking at uh, a lot of different things. And, and uh, so my goal here this morning is to... Um, to do more than just give you a history lesson. Uh, this is one of the challenges that we have. The book of Daniel is a, is a book of prophecy as well as a book of history. But for the Jews, they normally kept the book of Daniel sort of locked into their, um, the, their historical book um, uh, section, not the prophetic book section. Um, but we know that Daniel was a favorite book among um, the, not only the prophets that were his contemporaries, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but also Daniel was, um, uh, was something that was read very frequently by the New Testament Jews living in the day because there was an incredible amount of prophecy. And we're going to be getting into some serious things. And, and I guess that brings up the question of why even study the book of Daniel. And I think the biggest reason why we study the book of Daniel is because, um, A, it's a great book of history and a changing, um, chaotic time in the lives of the nation of Israel as they were going through major political upheaval and the change of regimes and all the issues that were going on, which as we look at today's political climate in our country, um, it's a very apt book. Um, if you look at uh, some of the issues that we're seeing as a nation um, in relation to how we um, are dealing with our foreign um, allies and enemies, um, it's also an incredibly um, um, interesting book to look at at this moment in time. Um, the Book of Daniel is one of the most contested books in the New Testament, um, largely because of its incredibly dense amount of prophecy. And the reality is, is that if this book truly is, is written when we say it is written, and believe me when I say this, it was written when it was written. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't written after the fact. It's not like there was a um, that they they looked at the the history and they said, "Hey, let's write a book of prophecy to match the history that's already happened." This book was in print um, long before many of the events that uh, take place uh, in the historical setting after this um, happened. So this is an incredibly important book, and many people feel, and from I want to say the third century on, um, that if they can. Destroy the accuracy or the veracity or the um, uh, the the support that Daniel has as a book of prophecy. Then you can devalue the entire Bible. Um, the other thing to think about is that if we look at the book of Daniel and we put it side by side with the book of Revelation, you can almost bookend those. Um, and between Daniel and Revelation is an entire discussion on what's going to be happening in the end times. Jesus himself, when um, he was uh, confronted by his um, inner circle of apostles, uh, his disciples, um, he, uh, about some of the things that were going to be happening in the end times, um, 
Jesus took them right to the book of Daniel. In fact, he took them to I think, chapter 10 or chapter 9 um, and sort of uh, uh, let them experience uh, from his lips um, and his perspective as being God, of course, um, what the end times really means. And so this is kind of an important book to study. Um, also, amidst all that, you have the incredible narrative of the lives of Daniel and his and his three friends. And so in the light of that, it's also a valuable book to look at as far as how we, as individuals, should and could respond during a time of political um, upheaval and, uh, and national turmoil and change. Um, and so I think in all in all, this is a book that, uh, that's a, a great thing to study and, and looking at, the, at where we are as a, as a, as a people, um, this is an incredible one. So the very first sermon I'm preaching um, in this series, I've titled it um, The Faith of a 15-Year-Old, and obviously we're talking about Daniel, um, and we're going to get into that in a few moments. So if you have your Bibles, we're not going to read straight through the chapter. We're going to read through the chapter as we go in interest of time, because you know we just only have so much time before we have to get to Sunday school, and I'm trying to, to fit it all in. So that being said, I want to encourage you guys uh, just to look at the first few verses as we, as we sort of lay this out. So now uh, follow along with me as we read the first few. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his gods. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, um, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving the king's court. And he ordered them, him, he ordered him, Asphanaz, to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily ration of, uh, from the king's choice food, from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years and at the end of which they would enter the king's personal service. Now I want to stop right there because we need to really sort of lay down some, some background on this so you guys can get an understanding um, of where, uh, where we're coming from. So it, it begins with some history. And, and please, I, I'm going to do my best to try to keep this from being a historical um, history lesson. That's not what I'm trying to do. But you can't get around the historicity of this book and how incredibly accurate it really is. And so I really want to encourage you guys to look at the history, the historicity of this book in such a way. There's so much in here. And it's interesting how there's so much in not just this part, but there's a, a lot of follow-on from several other um, books of the Old Testament that sort of give credence to um, what, we're, what we're seeing here. So the events that were happening here were not just happening alone. Um, there was a bunch of kings that had happened. And, and uh, many of us remember, if you've studied the kings of Israel, um, in Judah, um, this is in the, this is the nation of Judah, now the southern kingdom. Um, you'll know that uh, there was a particular king named Josiah, and Josiah um, was came to the throne at a young age, and he decided um, through godly inspiration that he needed to um, uh, sort of reform and rebuild and revitalize the temple. And so in doing such, 
he um, uh, he sent his, his 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 priests in there. He sent the Levites in there, and they began to clean out and, and repair and to make general um, make it generally able to be used again. So obviously, the, the nation of Israel had not been worshiping like they needed to. Um, neither had the nation of Judah, and subsequently, the nation of Israel um, was taken off. Now, you you may notice that in the, in the course of this, I may switch between the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, um, but you need to understand that this point in the discussion and this point in the narrative of the lives of all of God's children, all of the Israelites, whether they're from Judah or whether they're from the kingdom of Israel, um, uh, they're at a point where the only national identity of God's people was the nation of Judah. And oftentimes uh, the, the title children of Israel or nation of Israel was used um, uh, in conjunction uh, with uh, the, tri the, the nation of Judah. It mean the same thing because they were the only lasting people um, of God that were still in sovereign existence um, and not in captivity because the Assyrians had already conquered um, Israel, the kingdom of Israel. So, um, so I may slip up, but that's what I'm referring to, so please just follow along with me as best you can. Um, and so you need to understand that Josiah, while he was a good king in the process of, of restoring the temple, they found the book of the law, they spurred a national revival, and in that national revival, um, many people's hearts were changed and convicted the nation of Israel, drew closer to God. It was a very powerful, revitalizing time. Unfortunately for Josiah, that particular revival did not, um, did not flow to his children. Um, see, he served. For, he reigned for 31 years and had pretty much a good report. He didn't have a whole lot of issues. But right after him, his uh, his oldest son Jehoiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiahaz, um, was uh, was not a very good fellow. Um, he reigned for three months, and then he was sort of conquered by uh, the Pharaoh Necho in Egypt, and he was deposed and replaced with his uh, younger brother Jehoiakim. Him, that's with a K, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim was the king that's mentioned here. Now that particular king overruled for 11 years, but it was a rocky rule. He was not a very good king. Um, he made lots of mistakes, and he did not lead the people the way they needed to. Um, and that sort of led him to a place where he was very frustrated in his reign, and um, he was trying to figure out how um, uh, he was going to move forward. And uh, he was part of this uh, alliance that was going against the up-and-coming nation of Babylon that was sort of uh, picking and, 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 and taking apart the former Assyrian Empire at the same time that Pharaoh Necho from the south was pushing forward doing the exact same thing. And so in 605 BC, and I know it doesn't mean a lot to you guys, but this is a very important date because this date was locked in stone. This date is one of the one of the few dates that we have that's just rock solid, that's across the board. There is not a single bit of um, archaeological contradiction in any of the kingdoms. There was the Battle of Carchemish, and that battle was an important one because that's the battle where young Nebuchadnezzar at age 26 or 25 conquered and destroyed the Pharaoh's army. 
um, and was able to lay claim to um, the majority of the territory that would eventually become the Babylonian Empire. And that's really the beginning of the Babylonian Empire as we know it. Well, in the midst of all this battle and fighting that's going on, Jerusalem is having its own problems. And uh, because they were on the wrong side of this, um, they, uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar decided that he needed to take Jerusalem out. And so um, during this third year of Jehoiakim's reign, um, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came on. Now you say, why are we saying all this? Well, you know, like I said about the family of Josiah, his sons did not do well. Um, Jeho Jehoiakim only reigned for 11 years, didn't do a whole lot of good. Um, and then his, uh, his brother Jehoiachin um, only reigned for three months, made, had some major problems. And then um, another brother, Zedekiah, um, reigned for 11 years and caused major problems and eventually um, was the final king um, to serve in uh, Judah. And so there's a lot, of hap a lot of things that are happening right now during this time period, a lot of political turmoil. But the interesting thing was is that during the third year of Jehoiakim, um, that would have been only three years after the death of Josiah, uh, which means that Daniel, who was about 14 or 15 years old when he was carried off into Babylon, um, would have been in his formative years, between the ages of birth and 14, um, he would have been immersed in that the, the final days of the revival of God and his people before the death of Josiah. And so he would have been 10 or 11 years old uh, when Josiah died. And so he would have had a good amount of teaching in the king's household um, about God. And so while um, the legacy of faith that Josiah started didn't branch out to his children, it did infect Daniel and his three friends. And so we see that the legacy, that spiritual revival, does carry forward. In fact, it's, it was completely God's sovereign will because those um, those four individuals were instrumental in carrying word down all the way to the day that Jesus was born and uh, the the visit, subsequent visit of the Magi, which we're going to get to before we finish the end of Daniel. Uh, we're going to deal with that. So um, there's a lot in this. It's very dense. I know I'm talking a lot of history, and many of you may not be all that interested in it, um, but let me tell you something. It's a powerful discussion. And that all brings us up to this, this uh, point where it says um, in verse 2, where it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, this is an important thing. So the word there, Lord, is the Hebrew word Adonai. Um, it's the same word that we use in Greek for kairos. It just means Lord. But in the Hebrew, it gives us a little clearer understanding. The Hebrew actually uses the term not only as, as ruler or Lord, but it also uses as owner and sovereign. And so um, it's giving, Daniel is using this term specifically in reference to God um, as a um uh, to emphasize the sovereignty of Yahweh. And that sovereignty of Yahweh is the central theme of the book of Daniel. Every time we come close to talking about how God is interacting with his people, we're seeing that he's talking about the absolute sovereignty of God. So Nebuchadnezzar, it's not, not that he wasn't a bad general or a good general. Nebuchadnezzar was a very a very astute and capable general. He was able to, through um, the, the, the might of his army, and his capable soldiers, um, he was able to um, to really take.
take over the world um, as they knew it at that time. So he was a capable, very capable general. Um, but Daniel once known from the very beginning that it wasn't the skill of Nebuchadnezzar that allowed Judah to fall into his hand. It was the Lord himself that gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. And this is something that causes lots of people great distress. Because if you think about this, we oftentimes think that, that God is, is immune to, um, to the petty things like who is going to win a particular political race or who's going to be president or who's going to be this. Let me tell you something. God is intensely concerned about every aspect of creation. Uh, we know from the New Testament that all of the creation is sustained by the will of Jesus Christ. Um, that means every single atom that's spinning, every single electron that's spinning around every single nucleus of an atom is controlled and connected by Jesus Christ. And we know that he's intimately connected with every facet of our world from who wins baseball games all the way up to who wins presidential elections. You say, well, that's silly. God doesn't care whether or not this team goes to the Super Bowl or not. And, and I would say, I would, I would disagree with you. I think that God is intensely concerned with every aspect of it. Um, and he is sovereign in the universe. Whether he directly makes one team win over another um, is his choice, and I'm not going to speak for him in that. But it's obvious and clear when, when referring to Scripture. Scripture teaches us that God is in control. The New Testament tells us that every ruler that we have has been placed over us by God himself. That means every pastor in every pulpit was placed there by God. That means that whether they're good pastors or bad pastors, every every um, every politician that holds office is placed there by God. Um, now, granted, they have to run the race, they have to do the things necessary, they have to um, if they want to continue in that position, they have to uh, be honorable and have integrity. But we have to understand that God is in control, and the idea of God being sovereign is is this, again the central theme of this book, and we're going to see that time and time again as um, as as uh, as Daniel plays this out. He's trying to tell us that basically God is not asleep during the political upheaval of their day. Just like I'm telling you now that God is not asleep during the political upheaval of our day. I'm telling you God is in control regardless of who wins on November, regardless of who goes to Congress or, Senate or the Senate race. God is ultimately in control. Now some of you say, well that, what does that mean? What, is that, what, what does that mean to say that he's in control? I can't give you that. I can tell you this, that the people that were sitting in, in Jehoiakim's court in the wake of, of, Jer uh, of Josiah's death and, and looking at the future and looking at the political landscape and, and looking at the, the star of Israel sort of, um, sort of waning and um, some of these other nations rising up and wondering where they were going to fit in the global geopolitical scheme of things. I guarantee you none of them were sitting here saying, man, I can't wait for Nebuchadnezzar to come in here and take, and, and take us home to Babylon. Allow us to be able part of the big kingdom. You know, we can we go to the big city and the bright lights. None of them were thinking that. Um, and, and if you ask any of them at the moment what was going on, if they weren't prophets, if they didn't have a direct revelation from God, every one of them would have been incredibly sad and distressed that their nation that they loved um, was suddenly not theirs anymore. And so you have to understand this, that, that just because we are living in a country that is um, that we call America doesn't mean that America is going to be here um, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. And that's an important concept. Now, that being said, um, we need to uh, press forward because we know that God is sovereign and he is going to use whatever he needs to accomplish his mission. And right now the mission he has is that he has to, um, he has to execute judgment on the children of Israel. 
They had not been following God's commandment. He had been commanded them that every seven years he is supposed to, they were supposed to give a year of sabbatical um, uh, uh, rest to the land, and they had not done it. And because of that, God had let their 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 apostasy go just so far and finally said, you guys won't do what I told you to do in the beginning. We need to take a step back and we need to make sure that this happens the right way um, from now on. So, that being said, um, we see that the instrument of uh, God's judgment was Nebuchadnezzar. He was using, um, he was being used by God to execute judgment upon the children of Israel. And you see in verse 3 that once this happened, he, or in the end of verse 2, he uh, grabbed some of the items from not all of them, but just some of the, t the, the trophies from the temple, not, again, not all of them, and uh, was taking those, those trophies back to... Um, uh, back into his the house of his God as a trophy of war, um, which was consistent with what we found archaeologically with what Nebuchadnezzar did whenever he conquered a people. But in the midst of all this fighting that's going on, he's been away from Babylon for a while. And because he's been away from Babylon for a while... Um, Events are going forward. His father, who was the sovereign king at the time, his name is Nebopolezer, Nebopolezer, um, he died. And so word had reached to him that he needed to hurry home. He needed to secure his kingdom. And that's where we, um, that's where we come into verse 3. Verse 3 is an important one because at this point, the king, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, ordered his new chief of his eunuchs, chief of his officials, to gather together a bunch of the youths that were a part of the court, the royal court of Jerusalem, and bring them with them as they go back to Babylon. There is a purpose to this, and um, it's important that we look at this. You see, um, not only was he a very astute uh, general, but... Nebuchadnezzar was also pretty politically astute. He knew that there were some things that were going to happen when he, when he went back home. And, and they didn't have a political system like we do. It's not like they voted every four years for a new president. And in the process of voting for a new president, you know, they, you get what you get. Um, uh, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like an, an easy step down of power or transition. There were people that were in fully invested in power back in the capital um, uh, that were hereditary positions of, of court administrators and bureaucrats and, and people that kept the country going and um, they were all there and, they, and, and just in any like in any um, body of government where you have levels of bureaucracy that that are huge you're also going to have high levels of corruption and these people were dedicated to the king Nebuchadnezzar but they were not dedicated to Nebuchadnezzar and so because Nebuchadnezzar is now having to go back, he knows that he's going to have to do some house cleaning. He's going to have to drain some swamps. He's going to have to do a lot of firing because he needs to set his government his way. But in order to do that, he has to have able replacements. And so he does this for a lot of reasons. The other reason why he grabs these people is because these, you notice in verse 4 it says um, that they were, um, no, I'm sorry, verse 3, that they were from the royal family of, and of the nobles. The, every one of the individuals that were brought out of the nation of Judah were members of the royal line. Daniel was from the tribe of Judah. He was from the ruling line. Uh, we don't know what uh, family he was from. Some people have suggested that he might have been from the family of Zedekiah, the final king that sat on the throne. Um, we don't know uh, which king, uh, which uh, royal line he came from, but we know that Daniel was a royal. 
and as a royal, um, him and his brother, uh, his, his fellow uh, royals were carried off, and they were being brought not only to to be able to replace the bureaucrats that need to be replaced, but they were also brought over there as royal hostages. Um, this is very common back in those days for um, a king to for for. Uh, um, for a conqueror to come in and establish a puppet king, which was what Jehoiakim was, uh, uh, Jehoiakim was, um, in place, a vassal king, if you will, and he would bring the members of his family with him and hold them in hostage so that basically the king this far away needs to do what I say because I have your family under my thumb, in my rule. And so that's kind of what the, sets the stage of what's happening here. Uh, but you also notice some other things that are being said here. Uh, we notice that these youths had no defect. They were good looking. They were showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They were in out in, in um, an understanding, discerning knowledge, and had the ability for uh, serving in the king's court. These people were um, were already individuals that were um, that were the best and the brightest of the nation of of Judah. Now. I just want you to see what's happening here. Not only was the king pulling the hostages out, not only was he pulling out people to replace um, his uh, the the you know the, the bureaucrats that was in his own country, um, but he was also taking the next generation, the best and the brightest, and he was pulling them out of this country. And if you think about that, you know what is our greatest resource in the church? What's our greatest resource? in our country, in our community. Our greatest resource really is the next generation and how we invest in them. Um, and he's pulling the best and the brightest out and he's, he's bringing them um, uh, into a different place and he's, he's indoctrinating them. It's much like what we do in school, whether it's Christian school, homeschool, or whether it's public school, there's a level of, um, of, of indoctrination that happens. And so, that being said, we see this happen throughout, throughout history. It's not like it's this the first time. And you also notice the words that are being used here. No defect. Um, these were the cream of the crop. These words that were being used, that word um, uh, no defect is the word that we get in the Hebrew. It's, it's um, mum. It's, what it means, it's the same word that's being used in, um, in Leviticus 21 in referring to priests and how no priest can serve in the temple that has any physical uh, deformity or defect. It's also the same word used for the um, sacrifices that were laid on the altar. Um, this was a very ceremonial word, but it meant a lot, not only to um, the Babylonians who were looking for the best and the brightest, but also those who would eventually be the next generation of rulers um, in the nation of Israel. And so, obviously, this was, a, this was an important thing. Um, the word youths there, and this comes to the title of my sermon, Faith of a 15 year old. Um, we know Daniel was at least 14, if not 15. He wasn't older than 15 when he was taken. Um, and the reason why is because it was a Persian, it was a, a Greek, it was a Babylonian, it was a, a Middle Eastern concept back then that, um, that all youths that were going to enter public service, that were going to enter into training, um, would do so at age 14 or 15. And 
then they would uh, they would continue on for a three year cycle, and we see that being echoed right here. This is all backed up in the historical and, and archaeological record, and so um, he's chosen he's chosen these youths, and and um, also we see the word for youth in, in the Hebrew is yalad, and that literally means fourteen or fifteen year old uh, lad, and so we obviously have that here, and um, we see that they um, are now being brought out, but there's an issue that needs to happen. You see. The king doesn't need Jews serving in his kingdom. He needs young, brilliant men who will become Babylonians and be his new men that's going to help him run his new empire. And so because of that, he needed to take these boys away from their home and he needed to make them Babylonians. And we see that happening in the last half of chapter of verse 4. And we see that where it says that he was ordered to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. That basically means they were entered into the king's court and learn all the knowledge of the Chaldeans. And you say, well, what does that mean, all the knowledge? Well, at the time, in that time in history, uh, Chaldea, the Chaldeans, was the center of all knowledge and learning. They had the biggest libraries. They had the most information. They had the best teachers. They were, they were the Yales and the Harvards of the day. They were the place that you would go if you wanted to have the best possible education. To this day, we still have much of what they had. Um, in fact, we wouldn't have 60 minutes in an hour if it weren't for the Babylonians. They created a sexadecimal system that was par excellent. They had a 360-day calendar. Their astrology and astronomy was fantastic as they um, had been able to chart the skies. Many of the, the, the base 60 um, numerous systems like we have for our clocks and other things, all based upon what the Babylonians had taught and learned and knew. And so they're going Going into this, and they're going, and the king wants them to become, and literally become, Babylonians. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, we see in verse five um, that the king is uh, is doing that by by feeding them from his food and training them in his palace for three years that they're being educated. Verse 6 says um, that there were three of these boys, Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these four individuals were brought to the, um, the commander of the officials, which was Asphanaz, and they were assigned new names. Now this is an important time if you want to look at this because Daniel is, is now being brought out into this new world. And this has got to be tough for the guy. He's 14, 15 years old. I'm going to say 15 from now on because I believe he probably was 15. And uh, during the age 15, he's being brought into this new world. He, at one minute, he was a royal in the court of, um, of, his, uh, of his family. Um, he was preparing for whatever role that his family were going to have him in the, in the government in Israel. He, he was loving his God. He wanted to serve his God. He wanted to serve his people. He's, uh, his nation was destroyed. He's being plucked out of it. He's being carted off a thousand miles or more away to, to another world, another place that he didn't want to go, a place of decadence, sin, paganism. And in the midst of all this, um, you know, there's a temptation to walk away from the things of God. Um, but, you know, obviously we're going to see that Daniel did not. Now, Daniel, um, his name means literally, God is my judge. And he has three friends. 
Now, everybody here knows their Babylonian slave names, um, but how many of us really remember their, uh, their Hebrew names? Now, I just read them, so you ought to be able to remember, remember you know, 10 minutes ago when I read them, but the reality is that many of us don't. We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you very much for VeggieTales. But we don't always know Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those names oftentimes get pushed into the, into the back of our mind, and we often not, don't think about them. But I think it's important that we do, because their names had meaning. Um, Daniel's name was literally, God is my judge. Um, and his name was turned, changed into a Babylonian name, which was Belteshazzar, which simply means Bel, um, uh, the servant of Bel, or, or Bel is my protector, or Bel protects me. These are the words that we have, obviously a pagan god, Bel, which was the um, which was the god Marduk, and um, that wasn't very good. And then Hananiah, his word, his name literally means the Lord is gracious. You'll notice that each one of these four individuals had the name of God in their names. Either is uh, um, is like Hananiah or Daniel, E L or I or I A H. Um, so we get the we get both of those names parts of the name of God involved in each one of those. So Hananiah's name is the Lord is gracious. His name was turned into Shadrach, which means to be inspired by the sun god. Um, and that's, okay, um, whatever. And then Mishael, um, uh, his name means who is what God is. That's an interesting name. Who is what God is. Basically, the, the, the meaning there is who can be like God? No one. That's the question. And he was renamed into a Babylonian name, uh, Meshach, which meant who is what the moon god is. Notice how in each instance here, um, uh, the pagan deities are being twisted and the names that God had given them, um, which were profound and, and faithful, the, um, the pagan gods are just twisting just enough to give honor to their own gods and to take away the name of the Lord. And Azaria, um, his name means the Lord is my helper. Um, and he was turned to Abednego, which means servant of the god Nebo or servant of the god Nego. Um, and uh, so obviously we got those names that were, that were thrown out there. And these are not the names that um, our boys wanted. And they wanted to be able to serve their god. And then we see in verse 8, where it makes a decision. We see a shift that's happening after the new names, after the, in, the intentional desire to, um, to bring these boys um, into a place where they can be called Babylonians, no longer Jew, um, Jews. But Daniel stood firm. He says he made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Now this is a powerful statement um, that he's making. I mean, I want you to think about it. We've already talked about this quite a bit, um, about the uh, the fact that, you know, he is in the middle of nowhere. He's 14, 15 years old. Again, we're going to say 15. Um, and he's now being faced with an impossible situation. He has to grow up very quickly um, in a world that he wasn't prepared for. Um, most theologians, myself included, believes that um, not only did he give up, was, he, was his title, his royal family, his royal lineage taken from him. Um, not only was his ancestral home stripped from him never to be seen again. He would never go back to his home. Um, but there is also the belief by uh, myself, uh, based upon the writings of Josephus and many of the other writers of the day, and my own personal knowledge of an oriental court, and that is he was probably also created, uh, made into a eunuch. 
um, which means he had lost the ability to even have his own children. Um, and so we see that just about every single thing that was that was his that would have been something that he could rest on. He could rest on growing a family. He could rest because that was very important to the Jews was to be able to pass on their lineage. Um, their lineage was incredibly important to them. And so by taking that away from him, Daniel was stripped from everything that he knew. Everything that he had, everything that was important to him. And what was left was not a lot. He could have been angry, he could have been frustrated, he could have been um, wanting to, um, uh, to just to, you know, go along, to get along. Um, there's a lot of things that he could have done in this instance, but he didn't. And that's an important thing. Daniel chose to take a stand. Now I want to ask you, where did Daniel learn this from? Think about that. I mean, I've raised four children, working on number five. And I'll tell you now, as a father, the best and most important thing that I could ever ask for my kids is that when they're not in my presence, they're going to continue in the way that I've taught them their whole life. You know, when your kids leave your home and go off into the workforce, you want them to be able to carry on that legacy. I want my kids to do that. I want my kids to love God. Um, I want my kids to, to teach their children the godly legacy that I've tried to instill in them. You know, but the reality is, is that doesn't always happen. Daniel was, was incredibly young to have this kind, of a, um, this kind of a burden placed upon him. But he took a stance. It was a strong and powerful stance for a 15-year-old. And that kind of training only comes from one place. It comes from his personal schooling that he had. And back in the days of the Bible, back in the days when Daniel was there, the only schooling they really had was, I hate to say it, homeschooling. I don't hate to say it. I'm happy to say it. You know, the best kind of schooling really is homeschooling. And now I know we've got teachers. I like to work in the schools locally as a ministry. Um, and I know that not everybody's capable of teaching their kids at home. Um, but for those of you that do, it's a powerful, it's a powerful implement and tool. For those of you that aren't, um, you know, I, it's, it, you need to understand that just because you send your kids to a public schoolhouse does not mean you have abdicated responsibility for teaching your children. It just means you now have to work a little harder to overcome the teaching that they're getting in the secular schools with the Christian values that you need at home. And so I'm telling you now, the best schooling is always going to be homeschooling. Um, and that's just the way it is. That's how we teach our kids where they did, where they, they were. And Daniel obviously had some solid teaching at home that allowed him to stand up with such a powerful um, uh, presence. And it sort of gives us, gives us sort of a model. How in the world did he do this? Um, we see this in the, um, in this, in the, in the narrative. Um, Daniel said he wasn't going to do it. Um, and so he went to the commander and he sought permission um, with the officials that he might not defile himself. Um, so you can see there that he did this with politeness. He chose with Pernopolis, not with, without with arrogance, um, to seek a pathway forward. Um, and we see that God went before him and so he was resting on, on God's help. Notice in verse 9 it says, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. That's a powerful thing. Again, we see God is the one that's orchestrating all of this. God is the one that's sovereign. He's the one that's in control. He went ahead of Daniel knowing that this was important for Daniel 
able to maintain um, uh, maintain that that right standing before him. And so we see that he went there with politeness. He went there with the power of God's help. And verse three. Uh, I mean, the third thing is that he went there with um, persistence. He didn't just he didn't just back off when. Um, uh, when the when the the commander says, "Wait a minute! I don't think I can do this." Look at verse ten. He said, "The commander, who already had a good feeling about Daniel, he says very plainly, he says, 'I'm afraid of the Lord, my King, my Lord, and, and the King, um, who has appointed your food and your drink.' This is a very important thing. You have to understand. Nebuchadnezzar was not a jolly, happy ruler. He was not a benevolent dictator. He was an absolute potentate." He had a habit of roasting people alive that disagreed with him. He had a habit of destroying individuals, entire families. We see that in a, a later chapter when he says this. His favorite tactic, other than roasting individuals alive, that was one of his favorites, um, his other favorite way of destroying somebody was he would take an individual, the head of that household that, that offended him, whoever offended him, and he would sit them down and you know with guards around him and he would take every single member of his family and he would one by one have each one of those members in that family killed right in front front of that individual. They would force that individual to watch him. And once every single member of the household had been killed in front of that, that, that rebellious individual, then they would put his eyes out and let him live. So the last sight the individual gets to see on earth is the deaths of every single person in his household that he loves. That's a pretty mean man. I mean, that is just horrible. And so it's justified that this guy was terrified of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and honestly, Daniel should be afraid too. Because Daniel was proposing something. He's saying to the official here, he says, I don't want to eat the food. The food of the king, the best food there is, would defile me. That would add insult and injury to this king that we just mentioned has a habit of roasting people alive. And so not only was the commander of the officials, Asphanaz, not only was his head on the line, but so was Daniel's. And understand that there was only four of these guys that stood apart. The rest of the, the, the rest of the folks that came from um, Israel, and some theologians have estimated there was as many as 70 um, that was brought out of there. We don't know the exact number, but um, there could have been a lot. There was got to have been bound, bound to have been peer pressure um, involved in there. Obviously, the other folks are like, hey man, just, just go along to get along. We're here. We don't want to die. And, and they're probably thinking, you know, if you go and may cause this ruckus, what's to say the king doesn't just kill all of us? You know, he just says, I'm not going to deal with any of this. So there's that peer pressure. Um, there's also the possibility of this ruining their personal and, and potential career futures. I mean, maybe they'll get through this moment, but they have to be suspect from this point on that they won't, they won't dine to eat the, the king's meals. Um, and the choice that they're going to choose from here, obviously, is they're going to they're going to ask for vegetables or what the King James Version says, pulse, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, it wasn't very tasty in comparison. And um, you also notice that they're no longer at home; they're away from their parents. How many kids have we seen that have graduated high school and gone to college or gone off to the world, and as soon as they get out of mom and daddy's home, they go into full rebellion mode? 
How many of us did that when we stepped out of our mom and daddy's home? You know what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. Maybe Daniel could have been tempted in that way, but instead he did not. He stuck to his guns, and he, um, he with politeness, with the power of God's help, with persistence, and look what he says there. He says, hey, I understand you're afraid. I get that. Why don't we do this deal? He says, I know you're afraid, but um, why don't we do this? Why don't, why don't we let you test us? Give us 10 days, which by the way, 10 days is a common number of testing throughout the Old Testament um, and the New. Um, he says, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given, in the New American Standard, it says some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Um, in the King James, it says pulse. The word there is zeroim, zeroim, and it literally means seeds and vegetables. Uh, more than likely, we're talking about grain-like porridge. And this is one of those times where I really like the translation in the, New, in the King James Version um, because it uses the word pulse and it gets away from the idea of vegetables. Um, this is probably uh, like a bland oatmeal or, um, or some sort of ground-up seeds that they were feeding. Um, it was probably something you would normally feed more to animals than people or at least people that weren't as well-off and wealthy um, as uh, the, the, the folks in this court. Um, either way, um, the the um, the overseer chose to take up that challenge. Um, in verse fourteen, he says he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. So we see that how did he how did he um, how did he uh, go against this uh, ungodly commandment? He began with politeness. He moved forward in the power of God's help. He persistently chose to stand firm, and he did so in faith. He allowed the faith of his God to reign supreme because he said, in the end, our appearance will be better because this is what our God wants. And we see that being played out um, in, uh, in the rest of the verses in 15 and, six, 15 and 16. And that sort of leaves us to the next and final part of this uh, uh, of this particular chapter, which, by the way, chapter one is really just an overview of the life um, and times of Daniel and his and his three friends. Um, and it gets into the nuts and bolts in verse two. We'll get to that next week. Um, but verse seventeen it says, "And as for these youths, God gave again." We see the central theme of this book of God's sovereignty. God gave um, uh, Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave favor to um, Aspenaz for Daniel and his three friends. God gave the youths, because of their faithfulness, gifts and rewards for that faithfulness. And as for the four youths, God gave them the knowledge and intelligence of every branch of literature, every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel understood all kinds of visions and dreams. It's important that you lay that understanding down because not only will that set the stage for later um, things in the book, but it also sets him in a different class um, because back in those days... Um, the people in, in those, that part of the world strongly believed that the gods, with little g, uh, spoke to mankind through dreams and visions. It was an important part of their religion and their theology. And so being able to have somebody that could interpret those visions was incredibly important. It was important not only to um, the Babylonians, it was important to the Jews. 
because that happened. We had prophets, um, and we're in seers that were able to do that. Um, it was uh, Egypt, um, many of the other nations of the day that we have records of, both in the Bible and in the historical record, also felt that dreamers and, and vision tellers was important. And so um, this was something that Daniel was being laid down. And it says that um, at the end of the days, the three years, that the king had specified for presenting them, um, for specified for, they were presented um, uh, before Nebuchadnezzar. And then verse 19, the king talked with them, and out of all the ones that he, um, that he talked with, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all of them were the best. None of them were, no one else could be better than those four individuals. And so they entered into the king's personal service. This is an important thing. We'll get into this next week and the week, coming weeks as we start to look at what life was like in a Mesopotamian potentate's um, uh, kingdom in, in their courtroom. And you're going to see this is an incredibly important position. Um, there, were, there, were, there were degrees of closeness that you were able to get to the king. Um, and only those that were the most trusted, the most sound, the most useful to the king were allowed to be the closest to the king. And he kept everyone else at a distance. Um, and we'll get into that later as we discuss this. We see this not only in this book, but also in the book of Esther um, and other areas in uh, the Old Testament and the historical record. And so um, this is an incredible thing that they went into the king's personal service. He, they're personally now working for the king. And then we see in verse 20 and 21, it sort of sums up the rest of Daniel's life. It says, For every manner of wisdom and understanding um, about uh, which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the rest of the individuals that were his court advisors. And verse 21, And Daniel continued unto the first year of Cyrus the king. Um, and this is an important uh, distinction. Now, all that being said, we need to ask ourselves, now this is the first this is the first sermon in 12, maybe 13 sermons that we're going to be doing. And we're going to be getting into some incredibly dense um, stuff. This is all basically background and history as we are introduced to the characters um, that are going to be played out in front of us over the next um, several you know, several months as we try to finish this book. But how do we take this particular chapter chapter and move forward? And I think the best thing to do that is, um, the application, if you will, is is how to succeed in, in keeping that commitment we have to our God. We see, as we mentioned before, that we need to be polite. There's never a reason for us to be rude or arrogant. When, we in, when we're impolite to people, it just aggravates the situation rather than, rather than helping it. We see that um, laid out in Scripture in Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1, um, where the Lord tells us not to do these things, right? Um, so we should always be polite. The other thing is we have to remember in this day and age where everybody is shouting everybody down because of their opinions, nobody wants to listen. And as much as I may disagree with the other side of an argument that I don't agree with, um, doesn't mean that their arguments aren't valid. It doesn't mean that some of the things that they're asking or saying doesn't have merit. And if we're so busy shouting out or sitting in our echo chambers, we're never going to be able to hear the other side. And let me tell you something. One of the most important things about disagreeing sides is that both sides need have an inherent desire to be heard. And maybe instead of shouting over each other, we just spend some time listening to each other. We might actually be able to come to a consensus about a lot more things. But that's probably more sense than Washington will ever get. Uh, but yeah, we'll move on. Uh, we need to seek God's help. Without God's help, any effort we'd use to, uh, we do we do is likely to fail. 
Um, a passage of scripture you can turn to that will help you in this is, is uh, Psalm 127, verses 1 through 1 and 2. Um, we also need to realize that God seeks out those that are loyal to Him. The more that we seek to honor and serve Him, the more He's going to reward us and, 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 and favor us. So we need to seek God's help and know that God wants us to be seeking Him. We need to be persistent. Let's not give up after the, fir- after the first obstacle. Um, you know, Jesus talked about persistence. He, he talked about asking, seeking, and knocking. And he says, if you do those things, you will receive, you will find, you have doors open to them. Matthew chapter 7. Um, in the parable of the persistent widow, um, Luke records Jesus saying in chapter 18 of his gospel um, about the, uh, the widow that goes to the ungodly judge and is persistent. And even the ungodly judge, just to get the woman away, will listen to her. Um, so persistence is, 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 is a powerful parable, both in the Old Testament and the New. Um, we need to be willing to have our faith tested. If you're not willing to have your faith tested, then how committed are we really to trusting God? I mean, trusting God isn't just, I trust you, Jesus. It's, I'm in the middle of a crisis here. My son has cancer and my wife is not doing well. My kids are wayward. My job is on the, is on the line. I have bills due that, that outstrip the money that I have coming in. I have to get to work this week and my car is broke down. Yeah, the kind of faith you need to. If we're not willing to have our faith tested, how committed are we really to trusting Him? God often invited us to test His promises. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. Test Him. Test Him and see. Jesus also invites us to test and to test our, be willing to have our faith tested. John chapter 6, I'm sorry, John chapter 7, Matthew chapter 6. Both those passages are strong, powerful passages of how we can go about this. So I can tell you this now. The four things that we need to walk away from this are simply this. When we're trying to maintain our commitment to the Lord, we can do so by being polite, seeking God's help, being persistent, and being willing to have our faith tested. If you are willing to do those four things, we can be more like Daniel in our daily day in our day day to day life, both professionally, personally, privately, and publicly. So I encourage you guys to be thinking about that, praying about it as we move forward. How can we be more polite, seek God's help, be persistent, um, and be willing to test our faith? Now I know some of you may be sitting here at home watching this, and you may say to yourself, you know, it's are nice talks, and, and I know you're going to talk about some weird stuff in Daniel, and I can't wait to get to that. I wish you had talked a little more about that this morning, but you didn't. And, um, uh, but the reality is you don't really understand fully what we're talking about. Because you've never had the ability to, you never had that moment where you've tested your faith. You've never had that moment where you've put your faith in a holy God. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never had that moment, I encourage you to take this time now to do that. Um, if you want to talk to someone online, you can private message um, the church. You can private message um, some of the individuals you see in the um, in the feed. They'll be more than happy to share a little bit more about Jesus to you. Um, if you're here with us, in a moment we're going to have um, just a time of, uh, of invitation. We're going to open up the altar. We're going to encourage you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, don't leave here today without getting your heart right. Um, for those of you at home, you need to know that um, we're going to be going to the music in a moment. 
And when the music ends, um, the service will be over and you're, and you're free uh, to ponder and think about these things. For the rest of us that are here, we're going to be moving off into the Sunday school hour. And I encourage you to move with us. But um, that being said, I want to encourage you guys uh, to make use of this open altar. For those of us that love Jesus and know him well, I hope that you've been convicted um, by our lives as we compare it to the life of Daniel. Um, because Daniel was a very powerful and an amazing individual. And it's somebody that we should emulate. <clears throat> As we'll see in the coming um, sermons, Daniel truly was a singular individual in the time of history. Um, somebody that God has looked on fondly and with love and care. And somebody that's been carried up, uh, put up as an example for all of us as we live. So I encourage you to think about that. Bow with me if you will, and uh, the altar will be open in a moment. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask that you'll be with us this morning, this evening, uh, this morning, as we continue on, um, uh, and as we move into the Sunday school time. Father, we ask that you will give us the strength and courage we need to serve you. Father, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, whether they're watching online or whether they're in our service, Father, I ask that you will um, give them the strength they need to step forward, um, to put aside any lingering doubts, and to follow you and fully commit themselves to you. Father, if there's anyone in here that does, that does know you and is convicted, Father, I ask that you will lay that conviction heavy upon them, that they may take the, the words that we read today and, and just, just imbue it in their soul in such a way that they might uh, move forward in, what you've, in, in how you've called them to move. Father, again, we love you and we thank you and we just put all this service and message in your hands. Guide us and direct us to keep us safe and uh, bring us back into your house as soon as possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we um, move into our time of invitation. And for those of you that are um, viewing at home, thank you for joining us. Please enjoy the music as you allow it um, to sink into your soul and be reflective of the message that you've heard. Let's, uh, let's praise. <clears throat>